You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So yeah, as Leanne said, this is the second week in our Recover, Reset, Rebuild series. As we start to open up a bit more after COVID, how do we move forward? And we're doing this by looking at the story of Nehemiah. Uh, Last week, Jill introduced the story to us, how Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, to rebuild from the ruins. But before we get into all of that, I'm going to tell you a story about some boxes, uh, I have a friend called Luke, and a few years ago, he was moving house. And we had just moved house a few months before that, and we had a load of boxes in our flat from when we had done that. He said, can I borrow these boxes? And I said, yeah, of course you can. So we came up with a plan. There was some football match on that evening or the day after. So he was going to come to our house after work, straight from work to ours, eat some tea at ours, watch the football at ours. And then at the end of all of this, I would take him and the boxes back to his flat. Straightforward plan. Until the morning that this is meant to happen when he sends me a text and said oh uh, I forgot and I cycled to work so I said right never mind plan number two you just cycle to hours anyway we'll still have tea we'll still watch the football and at the end of the day you cycle home and I'll just drive the boxes back to yours great all sorted so he turns up at hours we have tea we watch the football at the end of the thing he gets his uh, bike stuff ready I wander off to get my car keys and he says you know, when we were younger, we'd have raced. Now, we've known each other for 20-something years. We lived together at university. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. But, you know, obviously now we're a bit more older. Bang! The next thing I hear, the front door has been slammed shut and he's gone. He's nowhere to be seen. So obviously me, being the very sensible, you know, 30-something-year-old father by this point, you know, well, obviously, what do I do? Grab my car keys, put my trainers on as quickly as I possibly can and run out of the flat straight after him. I go down the stairs of the flat, open the front door. He's nowhere to be seen, which means he must have got on his bike and he's got out to the gate and he's on the main road by this time I sprint across the car park I jump in the car I drive the car to the gate which opens incredibly slowly like really slowly and now for anybody who's watching this on the Facebook stream you will understand this bit of geography but for those of you who live around here I used to live just off the Walworth Road which has as you will know if you've been up or down the Walworth Road a million sets of traffic lights and a million bus routes on that road Luke because he's on his bike he's going to go the back routes. He's not going to have to worry about any of these traffic lights or about any of the buses. I come out of our road onto the Walworth Road. The first set of traffic lights, green. The second set of traffic lights, also green. The third set of traffic lights, unbelievably, also green. Now I'm coming up to the big crossroads, right? The bit where you've got Morrison's on your left, East Street Market on your right, always really busy, and a million bus stops there as well. The 12, the 148, the 171, the 176, the 68, the 468, the 35, the 40, and the 45, all stop there but on this evening as I was driving up none of them were anywhere to be seen I come up to this set of traffic lights they're red and as I drive up to them they go amber and they go green and I am through the fifth set of traffic lights on the Walworth Road without stopping once and I literally punch the air in the car and I shout yes and it's at that moment that exact moment that I realize the boxes are still in the flat (laughs) And that is why I feel like a bit of a fraud talking to you about this bit in the Nehemiah story this morning. Because this week is all about resetting. 
before Nehemiah does the job, before he actually gets on and rebuilds the walls, he plans it. He stops and he says, right, let's reset. Let's take stock of where we are and let's plan the next steps out carefully before we do any of this rebuilding work. And this, this is not my go-to. I like doing stuff. I do not like planning stuff. Over the last couple of weeks, um, we've talked about this shop front, which we may or may not be able to see, depending on whether this is working. Uh, no, we can't. Uh, across the road from here, uh, we're about to take over a shop front and turn it into our advice centre. Now, the first time that I thought about trying to take over this shop and turn it into our advice centre was about seven years ago. I was walking to work, and I saw that this shop front had a big to let sign on it. So I walked into the office, and instead of going to my desk I walked straight up to Steve's office I knocked on the door and he said come in I walked in and I said I've had this great idea like in the last 30 seconds we should take over the shop across the road and turn it into an advice centre like a one stop shop for our benefits advice and our death advice and all this kind of stuff and Steve immediately replied and said yeah fantastic let's do it so I turned around walked back out of the office still with my coat on still haven't even put my bag down and walked across the road into that shop over there and said, can we take the lease over? How much is it? It had already gone. They'd put up the sign that morning and they'd already had an offer in, sadly, before I managed to get there. But it's that kind of thing that I enjoy doing. It's one of, that's one of the reasons why I love working for Oasis is because things happen really quickly. We do stuff. We get stuff done. But organisation and planning, that kind of stuff does not come naturally to me. I have an older sister, Rach, uh, and she is probably the most organised person you will ever meet in your life. We are very similar in lots of ways, but very different in other ways. I often describe her as the nice one out of the two of us. But she is also incredibly organised. She's lovely and she's brilliant, but one year she did have a filing cabinet for Christmas. <laughs> what do you want for Christmas, Rach? I want a filing cabinet. I on the other hand, have to work really hard, really hard at organisation. I constantly write lists. I put every single thing I need to do immediately into my online calendar because I have learned that my memory is about as trustworthy as that bit in the Peanuts cartoon where Lucy holds the ball for Charlie Brown to kick it and then pulls it away every single time. And, you know, that's fine because, you know, when you're a grown-up, when you have a job, you have to be organised, don't you? You have to do these kind of things. You can't really get away with the level of organisation that I had as a student, for example, when on the first day of our exam period, I went down to look at what my timetable might be for those exams to write down when I would have exams, only to find out that I actually had an exam on the first morning of the exam period and I was currently missing it and therefore would fail that course. Um, so now... I work really hard at organisation. But it's things like this that mean that I struggle to identify with Nehemiah, really, and certainly with this part of the story. Because if you read this story, you get the impression that this was a man who definitely would have gone to get his exam timetable before the first morning of the exams, like my sister would have done. Or, you know, to be fair, like almost everybody in the whole world probably would have done. 
So anyway, let's look at this story. So a few weeks ago, I told the story of Ezra, which is the book of the New Old Testament that's before Nehemiah in our Bibles. The two books are better read together because they share a common story. They're both about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In fact, in some early manuscripts, they are actually one book, just two sections of it. And the Nehemiah bit starts 12 years after the end of Ezra, when Nehemiah, who's still living in Babylon, gets word that Jerusalem Jerusalem is in turmoil. Today I'm going to focus on that bit that Josh read, Nehemiah chapter 2. But here's the first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 1, which Jill talked about last week. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So Nehemiah decides to do something about this. He already has a relationship with the king. At the end of chapter one, we find out that Nehemiah's job, as Leanne mentioned earlier, was that he was a government official. He was the cupbearer to the king. What that means is that he tasted the wine before the king had it because one of the easiest ways to kill a king in those days was to poison the wine that he would drink. So good news, bad news, I guess. Good news, you got to taste a lot of good wine. Bad news, you never know if it's the last good wine that you'd ever taste. But the cupbearer was one of the king's most trusted employees because when your cupbearer tells you that he's tried the wine and it's okay, you have to be able to trust him. So Nehemiah goes to the king and he says, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. When I talked about Ezra, I said that one of the reasons that the king allowed the Jewish people to go home and to start to rebuild Jerusalem was because giving the people a little bit of freedom was a good way to stop any potential uprising in your country. And there was also another reason, and that's because it made good political sense too. This was an era of continual war. There was always an uprising going on. There was always another empire around the corner waiting, ready to come in and take over. And there was another of these armies that were in Egypt, and they were gaining ground at this moment. And they were headed towards Susa, where Nehemiah and the king were. A strong Jerusalem would help the king to stop this potential uprising. And in those days, the city walls didn't just distinguish whether you were inside the city or outside the city. They were the city's first line of defense. So when Nehemiah's brother tells him that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, this is a big deal. So the king's happy for Nehemiah to go. And in verse 6, the king says to him, how long will your journey take and when will he be back? And here's the bit where we find out about Nehemiah's planning. He replies immediately. He gives the king a time scale. He asks for letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates to grant him safe passage and another letter to Asa for materials. He wants timber. He wants timber to make beams for the gates, to make the city wall and to make the place where he'll stay. Nehemiah knows exactly what he wants. He knows exactly who he needs to speak to and exactly what to ask for. He's planned it. He knows that if he's going to do this, he needs to stop, take stock of where he is, 
And he needs to do this before charging in and starting with the rebuild. He's going to get one chance to discuss this with the king. He has to be prepared. And also it's this planning that saves him. If we move forward a few verses, from verse 11, we see that Nehemiah is now in Jerusalem. And he knows that Sanballat and Todiah, who are the governors of Samaria and Ammon, he knows they won't be happy with him because a strong Jerusalem makes their positions weaker. Nehemiah needs to inspect the rubble of the wall, see what's left after all the devastation. But because of Sanballat and Todiah, he sets out during the night and does this discreetly. Verse 16 says that the officials didn't know what he was doing. If he hadn't planned it out, if he'd just gone straight in during daytime instead of going at nighttime, the story might have ended a bit differently for Nehemiah. So the inspection is now complete. Nehemiah knows the scale of the task that's ahead of him. His organization and his planning have been immaculate and he's ready to go. Nehemiah knows what he wants to achieve. He's planned it all out. And he's executed the plan perfectly. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe it's because everything has happened so perfectly that I struggle to identify with Nehemiah. Obviously, this is a story written by a human, so it might be that some of the difficult bits are left out because they want Nehemiah to come across like this strong, competent leader. But if we take the story at face value and there's no historical or theological reason why we shouldn't take it at face value if we take it at face value it can seem pretty difficult to identify with can't it because I don't know about you but in my life things very rarely go so smoothly very rarely do things go perfectly to plan I think maybe just a few of you might have experienced a bit of that over the last 18 months or so very rarely do I think, right, this is what I'd like to achieve. These are the steps that I need to get there. And these are the people that I need to help me. And then everything goes exactly according to that plan. Because life is messy, isn't it? Other people are involved, people who might have their own plans, their own ideas. Or maybe it's just that I don't hold up my end of the bargain. And so for me, it's the next bit of the story that's the interesting bit. Because Nehemiah's next job is to go to the locals and to convince them to join in with his plan. It's not a difficult task on one hand. Of course they want the walls to be rebuilt. But so far he's done everything by himself. And now he needs others to join in. So in verses 16 to 18, Nehemiah gathers together, it says, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the others this, as boring as it might come across when you initially read these verses, is really significant. It means that he's pulling together every Jewish person who stayed in Jerusalem, from the most important in that society all the way down to those who were deemed the least important. The religious leaders, the political leaders, but also every single man, woman and child because everyone gets to play a part in this. The king's most trusted advisor comes to Jerusalem and he puts himself on the same level as every other Jew in the city. In verse 17, Nehemiah says, you see the trouble we are in. And it's that word, we, 
that's really important here. He's not saying you see the trouble you're in. He's saying, I'm with you. I understand. I've traveled hundreds of miles for this. I'm working with you here. And this would have been significant because the Jewish people who had stayed in Jerusalem after the walls had been knocked down, every day they would have had to face the possibility of unrest, of death. Because Jerusalem was a volatile city and it was a volatile time. There were continual wars, uprisings, as I said earlier, and counterattacks. And having no city walls made Jerusalem a pretty easy target. But these people believed in God. And because they believed that this was still God's holy city, they stayed. They had put up with the uncertainty, put up with the worry, because they believed that they were doing God's work. And this, for me, is what this story is actually about. It's bigger than a story about leadership, about organization, about planning. It's bigger than a story about rebuilding a city's walls for me. This is actually a story about restoring a broken community. These were broken people, beaten from pillar to post by numerous occupying forces. But finally, 70 years after these city walls were knocked down, finally their commitment was being rewarded. The king's most trusted servant was standing in front of them saying, come on, let's rebuild these walls together. I know how hard this has been, but we are going to do this. We're going to rebuild. You've been down and out. You've been beaten up and bashed around. But come on, let's go again. Let's get up and let's rebuild. Imagine what it must have been like to be standing there hearing that after 70 years. This is not just a story about the rebuilding of a city's walls. It's the story about the restoration of a dedicated community of people. And the parallels here for us are obvious, I guess, aren't they? Because we also live in a city that's desperate for restoration. Maybe not physical restoration, maybe not like Jerusalem, but we also live in a city that needs restoration. We live in a city where a couple of miles away from here, there's a house currently on the market for £122 million. And yet some friends of ours, who lots of us will know here, are having to commute into the primary school that we run around the corner from here because they've had to leave their flat for no fault of their own and they've been placed in a house in North London, an hour away. So every day, that family and their kids are commuting in an hour every single day because there's no house for them in Waterloo. We live in a country where a cabinet, almost all of whom are millionaires, are about to cut £20 per week from universal credit, which already isn't enough money to live on. The Joseph Roundtree Foundation have done a ton of research on this, and they've said it will drive half a million people into poverty, including 200,000 children. They say it will trigger poorer mental and physical health for hundreds of thousands of people. It would be the biggest overnight benefit cut 
in modern history. And it will have a real, genuine impact on friends of mine, on people that we know. We need restoration in our community, in our city. So what do we do about it? What's our role in all this? Well, one of the things that Nehemiah did is that he used his power to help the powerless. He was one of the king's most trusted employees. He could have stayed in the safety and the security of the king's courts. One of the most powerful men in the region. But he used that power to help others. This week, we've been campaigning about that £20 a week cut to universal credit. We're working with the Trussell Trust, who, as most of you will know, run loads of the food banks in the country. And we're running this campaign called 20 Quid Can. 20 quid can pay for your food for a week. 20 quid can mean that you can afford to eat and to put the heating on in the winter and you haven't got to make a decision on one or the other. 20 quid can pay off the loan that you have taken out, which stops the bailiffs coming around. 20 quid can pay for your kid's school trip so that she's not the only one in the class who's missing out. 20 quid can do a lot of things. So maybe that's it this week. Maybe our role is to get involved with this campaign. But we might be thinking that because we're not Nehemiah, because we're not brilliantly organized or a wonderful planner, that there isn't much of a role for us here. We might be thinking that we need to hand over responsibility to a leader, an organizer, somebody who can speak to the people in power like Nehemiah could. But Nehemiah shows us that that isn't the case. Because even though he was one of the most powerful people in the region, he invited everyone to work with him. Religious leaders, political leaders, every man, woman, and child were invited to play a part in this. Regardless of their situation, regardless of their backstory, Regardless of whether they'd been leading the fight against the occupation or whether they'd been beaten up by the whole situation and had taken a back seat, everyone was invited to play a role in restoring their community. So maybe that's your response. Working out what your part is in restoring this community. Maybe it's volunteering here with Kids Church or joining the Sound and AV team or maybe you, unlike me, maybe you listen to the story of Nehemiah and say, yeah, that's me. I'm the organized one. I'm the planner. I'm the administrator. I always feel like we hugely undervalue administrators. One of the things about not being a planner is that I have a huge amount of respect for people who are good at that type of thing. If that is you, come and speak to me at the end because I definitely have many jobs that you could do. Everyone has a role to play. Communities don't get transformed because of one person who's in charge. They get transformed when everyone pitches in. Nehemiah knew that. That's why he said, do you see the trouble that we are in? Everyone has a part to play. Because in Jerusalem, a community working together as equals led to the restoration of a city. So I invite you to think, to pray, to ask God what your role is in this. What is your role in the restoration of Waterloo or the restoration of London or wherever you are? 
Could you get involved in what we're trying to build here? Or is your role to restore relationships in your family? Or to restore lives through your place of work? Or do you yourself need to be restored before you can even think about helping others? Because that is also totally, absolutely fine. There is a place for everyone. The restoration of a community led to the restoration of a city. I invite you to play your part.